Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast with Aaron Holt, Functional Nutritionist. I work with clients on the seacoast of New Hampshire and virtually all over the world through both private consultations and online nutrition programs. I'm here with my co-host, Kyle Mayorana, registered dietitian of Root Down Nutrition based in Asheville, North Carolina. We are both board-certified integrative and functional nutritionists. This means we dive deep with people to get to the root cause of their health issues. In this podcast, we will address all things health, food, and nutrition, discussing our research, clinical experience, and life experience. Please keep in mind our disclaimer, this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or medical treatment. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. All right, guys, we're back with another show. Today, we're going to talk all about IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. Um, I keep seeing so many clients with IBS diagnosis who are told there's nothing you can really do, it's just IBS. Some of my clients have been dealing with digestive symptoms for years, some a decade, and they've passed all the conventional gut tests with flying colors, endoscopy, colonoscopy. I always joke that they love to go in the mouth and up the butt to look for things, or even um, a celiac disease test. They all come back normal. But what people don't understand is that the conventional model is really screening for end stage problems once something has already become a disease state. For example, we don't receive a celiac disease diagnosis until we've already received extreme damage to our intestines. And it's just so frustrating to hear that everything is normal when you know that your symptoms are not normal. So then we feel like, oh, I just guess I have to live like this. And it infuriates me that modern medicine tells people to just deal. I think so many of us just get accustomed to feeling just okay while we try to manage our symptoms that we forget what it's like to feel awesome. Okay becomes our new norm and we move through life just trying to survive and we forget that thriving is an actual option for us. And then what's even worse is that we have physicians making us feel like we're crazy. I had one client go to a gastroenterologist in Boston. She spent a lot of money to get to the best of the best, only to be told that what she was experiencing was not in her gut, it was in her head. So when I ran functional gut testing on her, I did both the SIBO breath test and a GI map. I found that not only did she have methane dominant SIBO, but she also have C. diff living in her gut, which is a pretty gnarly pathogen. So obviously that's a very big deal that needs to be addressed and not just written off. And so since I'm seeing this over and over again, and I'm seeing a lot of IBS in my practice, I figured it was about time we addressed it on the show because we haven't yet. So today I have... Susie Garden here. She's a gut healing naturopath and a yoga teacher. She knows a lot about IBS. Um, She sees clients in her wellness clinic in Brisbane and runs the Transformational Radiant Health Mentoring Program, which reflects her holistic approach to health. And I want to hear from the horse's mouth a little bit about your background, Susie, and how you got, I think the combination of naturopath and yoga teacher is so cool. Um, I myself am a yoga teacher, so I would love to hear about how you infuse that into your practice. So welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. 
Thanks Tell us so a little bit much. about yourself. <laughs> Thanks so much, Erin, for that and for that lovely introduction. And yeah, I agree with you. Having yoga, teaching and naturopathy together is a fantastic mix. And I do use my skill set in both of those modalities constantly. I find they complement each other really well. So yeah, so I guess my journey, I started off as a registered nurse and working in the conventional medicine model for quite a long period of time. And then I actually crossed into the dark side and went into the pharmaceutical industry for a long time as well. And I loved it. I thought it was a fantastic uh, job and I felt like we were doing a lot of good. But what I found over time for myself personally is I was getting incredibly burnt out. I was traveling lots, I was uh, living on airline food and hotel food and just getting no downtime, no self-care and ended up having gut issues myself but also um, anxiety issues and I ended up doing my yoga teacher training. Yoga had been part of my life for about 20 years and I just really did it for me because I thought it would be really good for my own um, relaxation and health. But what I found was I did my teacher training in an intensive uh, in Bali. And then when I got back from there, I actually got retrenched from my job or laid off, I think you call it in America. So I ended up starting to teach yoga, which was amazing. And at the same time, I started studying my nutrition qualification. And then once I finished that, I realized naturopathy was calling to me. So I got very interested in the herbal medicine, probably because of my background in pharmaceuticals. And yeah, from uh, that experience and being able to heal my own gut and heal my own anxiety, I found that that's where I was drawn to in my practice. And I don't know if you find this, Erin, but those kind of patients also were drawn to me. So uh, I find myself specializing in gut health but the the gut brain connection is so strong that it actually becomes mental health as well i also have um my mom has ibs so i've learned a lot from seeing her health journey and as you you put it so absolutely true is how it gets treated in conventional medicine they test for everything and then they say oh well it's just ibs because they can't put a label on it and see you later kind of thing. So I'm so thankful that I have been able to help not only my patients, but also my mom through what I now know about gut health and IBS and also mental health. So why don't we just get into the the basics what is IBS and how is it even diagnosed? You said it, you know, they run all the tests and then they're like, we found nothing. So I guess it's IBS. It's yeah. sort of a diagnosis of, of uh, exclusion. Yeah, for sure. That, and that is what happens. Yeah, and the thing exactly. is, you know, to be fair, it is a difficult condition to diagnose because often when people have um, diarrhea or they have constipation or they have pain, there is an embarrassment associated with that. And a lot of the time people leave these uh, symptoms to go for quite some period of time before they actually go and get anything done about it. And they're quite non-specific 
symptoms in a way in that, you know, all of us over our lifetime at some time would be constipated or might have diarrhea. So it sometimes just takes, I don't know, either a particularly bad episode or, um, yeah, maybe they read something on the internet before they actually go and get something done about it. So of course, uh, on the medical side of things, they do need to exclude more serious pathology. And often that is why um, they do go in and do gastroscopies and colonoscopies and that sort of thing. But um, there are some specific diagnostic criteria now called the Rome 4 diagnostic criteria for IBS. And it's considered now that once those sort of more um, serious pathologies are excluded that if the patient meets these criteria then they have IBS and those criteria are like recurrent abdominal pain for at least one day a week in the past three months associated with two or more of these other criteria so one is improvement with defecation or increasing with defecation that that pain the pain is associated with a change in the frequency of stool or the pain is associated with a change in the stool form or appearance. So there are these specific criteria, but even as you know, I, I um, talk about them. I mean, there's, that's something that can be uh, present for many people. And they don't really think anything about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think so many of us, kind of like what I was saying earlier, so many of us get accustomed to our symptoms that we just are like, I guess this is life. Yeah. Um, so I, I've heard you say before on your podcast that IBS affects more women than men. Do you see that play out clinically and why do you think that might be? Totally. Um, I don't know the reason behind that. I'm not sure that there's any research yet that shows why that's the case. And I mean, who knows? It could be even that women are presenting more with these complaints. And because we know that men don't tend to go to their doctor or healthcare professional as regularly. So it's, it's even possible that um, there is a higher incidence in men than we actually have documented. So we're not quite sure why that's happening more in women. That There, there may be a genetic component, um, but yeah, I, I don't think there's actually a clear reason for uh, that gender bias that we see at the moment, but certainly in my own clinic, it's mainly women. And generally by the time they're seeing me, they've been unwell with these symptoms for years. And most of them, uh, as you mentioned before, it it becomes part of their normal. And so, uh, you know, I even had someone in my clinic recently who is a doctor and uh, she had had diarrhea symptoms for seven years. And she said to me, but that's normal for me. And I said, yeah, but that's not normal. And I think sometimes it's not until they actually have a conversation with someone and actually face that and go, actually, that isn't normal to have diarrhea for seven years. And it is, it continues to be an absolute, um, just, just a surprise to me as to what people will put up with for long, long periods of time. And it's not until they're almost falling over that they seek help. 
Oh my goodness, I couldn't agree more. And I don't yeah. think we ever learn what normal bowel function looks like. So yeah. I see a lot of constipation and somebody, you know, they might not, they might only move their bowels once or twice a week. And they yeah. said, yeah, but that's normal for me. I'm like, but yeah, that's good. That's not <laughs> Ooh, normal. That's really not good. <laughs> um, all right. So let's get into what are the causes of IBS? Why, why does this happen? Why are people yeah. experiencing this? Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, there, there's still, I think, research being done in in this, but um, there is a couple of factors that seem to be at play. So, food intolerances is uh, usually, but not always, one of the underlying factors, and often that's a dairy. I find, oh gosh, probably eighty percent of the people that come in with IBS have a dairy intolerance and all we do is just eliminate dairy for a couple of weeks and just see what happens and yeah i reckon 80 percent of the time that will create quite a significant improvement in symptoms and also of course the other culprits are often wheat gluten and eggs are probably the most common uh, food intolerances i see that are connected somehow with ibs and of course um, whether that's a cause or whether that just happens to be um, people are more susceptible to food intolerances because they've got inflammation in the bowel, I don't think that's known yet. Um, the other thing which is really interesting with IBS is serotonin um, production. So we know that about 90 to 95% of our serotonin, which is a brain chemical, I think most people have probably heard of serotonin by now, but it, yeah, it is a, a brain chemical, but it's actually produced in the gut. And if we have low serotonin, that can cause mood disorders such as anxiety, depression, can also cause migraines. So serotonin is a really important brain chemical or neurotransmitter. So we know also that serotonin helps with bowel motility. So when um, we eat and the food passes through our digestive tract, it passes through through a process called peristalsis, which is the movement of the muscles along our digestive tract. And serotonin actually helps to control that. And if we have low serotonin, then that our peristalsis will slow down and that contributes to constipation. And serotonin can also stimulate peristalsis to make it go more quickly, which can lead to diarrhea. So we know there is a link here with serotonin. And we also know that people with IBS often will describe themselves as warriors. They will describe themselves as being anxious. And we now know with this serotonin link with IBS that that worrying and anxiety that people with IBS experience actually is probably part of that disease process. Whether or not, whether it comes first or whether the IBS comes first, it's, it's probably fairly variable, but that I find is really, really interesting because I, I oh, such a high proportion of my patients with IBS say that to me, oh, I'm a worry, I worry about everything, I lie awake at night, and then when we can make that link and we, I can explain to them about the serotonin link, it just makes so much sense to them. And it also then really helps with moving forward with a, a treatment plan because then I know that I can 
encourage people to include high serotonin foods in their diet, which will help with um, building up more serotonin and also just with healing the gut so that the, the body's natural production can uh, be optimized. Can I jump in here? Because I see mm. that quite a bit too, that mm. that worrisome disposition, that mm. prone to anxiety. With with this, are you are you doing any type of testing to screen for low serotonin or are you just going off of symptoms? Yeah, I, do, I don't. I have considered it. I have always found that when I look at doing testing, I think, is this going to actually change my treatment plan? And if it's not going to make a significant difference, right. then I don't. And, and how I tend to go about um, improving their mood and their serotonin is more through bowel healing. And the, the response I find is actually very quick. They will generally get an improvement in mood within like four to six weeks with the right treatment. So it depends on the patient's response. But if I'm getting that fairly quick kind of improvement in mood then and that reduction in worry then I I won't take that further with testing because I know that I'm on the right path but of course if that's not the case and I and I haven't I have to admit I haven't yet not had that happen but if that was not the case and their anxiety was continuing and I was concerned about that then yes I could move to testing or in Australia it, that would be a referral back to GP because there, there may be the um, requirement for prescription medication to address that if the anxiety was really, really severe. What kind of um, serotonin promoting foods do you like and what, what do you use in your practice? Mm, yeah. Well, interestingly, a really unusual one is kiwi fruit. Kiwi fruit uh, full of huh. uh, phytoserotonin. And there's actually a really interesting study done in sleep and kiwi fruit. So they took these people that had insomnia and they got them to eat two kiwi fruit every night. I think it was like 20 or 30 minutes before they went to bed and their sleep markers all improved. And it's because of the serotonin in the kiwi fruit, which is really fascinating, I thought. That is cool. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, but most of the time, it's, I look at protein. So tryptophan is an amino acid, which is uh, one of the building blocks of um, our serotonin. So pro good quality protein that has all of the amino acids is what I look for with um, trying to help people improve their serotonin. So that's things like um, turkey, like uh, pumpkin seeds or pepitas, foods like that. But any complete protein will have um, tryptophan in it. So that's the kind of food. And also uh, there are some other cofactors are required. So like zinc and magnesium, uh, vitamin B6, vitamin C are all really important to help the body build serotonin. So any of those types of foods, um, so you're looking at your citrus, strawberries for your vitamin C, zinc is things like um, oysters, nuts and seeds, uh, magnesium. Often I will actually use a magnesium powder because 
in Australia, and I'm sure it's probably similar in the United States, about 30 to 50% of the population is deficient in magnesium. And that's because our soils are so depleted. So our foods are not necessarily containing the high levels of minerals that we used to get. And I find with people with this kind of um, disease process with IBS, that they really need to have a fairly high dose of magnesium to um, get the response that we want. Yeah, uh, same here for sure. Mm. So for people who are familiar with IBS, we know that there's this strong connection between stress Mm. and symptoms. Can you speak more about the gut-brain connection? I mean, one of those connections is clearly... Um, serotonin, we're producing that neurotransmitter Mm. in our gut. So there's one connection. Mm. But what else could be affecting? Why would stress cause more IBS symptoms? Well, stress is an interesting one. So we have our stress response, which is our flight and fight response. And when that happens, we, you know, we, the body's preparing to, to fight. So the um, systems in the body that are not a priority at that time, which are digestion, which are reproduction, which are sleep, are all of a lower priority. So those sort of things slow right down. That's why people find it difficult to sleep when they're stressed. That's why people get constipated. Sometimes they might get diarrhea when they're stressed is because the the digestive system is just a lower priority. And that's why, you know, fertility can be reduced when people are, are very stressed because our, um, our priorities are not there. So our blood flow going to those areas is um, not as prioritized. And so when people are constantly in that stress response, it can affect your digestion quite significantly. I remember when, when I was nursing, I was actually an operating theater nurse and we used to do this procedure. Not, I don't think they do it anymore. It was called a vagotomy. So you have the vagus nerve, which runs from the brain. It's actually, it's actually a very complex nerve, but it is part of that gut brain connection on a more physical level. And for um, stressed um, business people, it tended to be, and it tended to be men um, that were overproducing their stomach acid because of their stress. Uh, we would uh, do a vagotomy. So we would actually cut that connection uh, in the vagus nerve so that they would reduce their production of stomach acid. And these were people that would get very severe stomach ulcers. So this that was the treatment at the time to uh, reduce stomach ulcers. So this that's, I guess, a, another example of the gut-brain connection being manipulated to reduce gastrointestinal symptoms. But generally speaking, we want to tone the, the vagus nerve. And I don't know if that's something you learned a lot about when you did your yoga teacher training, but I've, I've certainly had that um, drummed into me through my training is about toning the vagus nerve through mindfulness, through um, breathing, meditation, that sort of thing. But yeah, this gut-brain connection is very, very real. And it... Uh, Oh gosh, it's actually very complex. That's just kind of one element. I of I it. can't believe they used to. Oh yeah. Take out the vagus nerve. I mean, whatever happened to motility after that? Like yeah, that I is know. so insane to me. Yeah, they they just cut it. Like they didn't actually remove. They just cut it to to reduce that connection. So yeah, it's just extraordinary when you think about it. I'm pretty sure they don't do that anymore. 
Wow, that's pretty wild. Okay, so there's there's a there's this bi-directional communication. The brain's mm. talking to the gut, the gut's mm. communicating back with the brain, and so we yeah. know that there's this interplay with yes, our emotions and what's happening at with our digestion. Yes, absolutely. What about um, the connection between IBS and SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth? Are you seeing that quite a bit? I'm, I'm actually really seeing an increase in SIBO, yeah. And um, that's really interesting. And I, I actually think more of that is probably a connection with the high usage of proton pump inhibitors for that stomach acid issue which is, again, related to stress. But I, I, that's what, more where I'm seeing it, more than IBS in my own practice. Yeah, okay. Um, there is a physician over here, Dr. Allison Seebecker. Are you familiar yes, with her Yes, I work? am, yes. And I forget what the exact quote, I wish I had written it down, but um, somewhere between, like it's like around 80% of IBS cases have an underlying overgrowth in their small intestine. So like, and I don't know if that's just stats for over here in America or wow. what, but that is wild to me. Um, it is, but it? what I'm seeing, yeah. I mean, what I'm seeing with my IBS clients when we do functional gut testing is that there's almost always some type of bacterial growth, whether that's in the small intestine or the mm. large intestine. Mm. So are you seeing that that is one of the contributors, yes. uh, like a bacterial overgrowth or uh, parasitic or otherwise. Yeah, definitely a dysbiosis picture. So, um, and dysbiosis is interesting. So, it can really be a function even of just of low um, beneficial bacteria. So, low bifidobacteria and lactobacillus, which can be reduced by all sorts of things. It can be reduced by antibiotic use. Um, I think antibiotic use is sort of decreasing a little as doctors are more aware now of resistance, but certainly in the 90s and noughties, which is uh, probably the age group of the women that I see are in their 30s and 40s. So they were kind of, you know, getting treated more frequently with antibiotics um, than probably people are now. And through that time, that has impacted their gut bacteria significantly. And when you get that low beneficial bacteria, of course, that provides opportunity for overgrowth of non-beneficial bacteria. And so you get this imbalance in the gut. And, and that can, as well as um, uh, antibiotic use, that can also be by non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. So things like ibuprofen, uh, which is also another really, really common um, painkiller that people use, um, you know, particularly women with uh, period pain and things like that. A lot of women will be taking ibuprofen or other anti-inflammatories like that fairly regularly, and that definitely impacts negatively on our beneficial uh, gut bacteria. Also, stress uh, can also impact our um, gut microbiome, so that balance of the, the beneficial and non-beneficial bacteria. There's so many things now that we know about that will impact this and then yeah when you when those uh, beneficial bacteria become low then that just provides that opportunity for overgrowth um so yeah it's and also diet of course i didn't mention diet high sugar high processed foods will also our our um gut bacteria don't like that uh and that will also um provide a great environment for that overgrowth so that's I love that statistic. That statistic you mentioned is is it makes a lot of sense to me. 
Yeah, for sure. And mm. I've heard you say on your podcast, um, you were talking about the importance of gut testing. You said mm. it's really important not to just muck around with probiotics. Yes. And yes. I love that. I've been saying that for quite a bit. <laughs> uh, um, so can you explain why you said that and what do you mean by that? Yeah, because these these things are not generic. Um, we all have our own individual gut microbiome and that is formed right from birth that, that we know there's from babies that are delivered vaginally versus through cesarean section that will impact the development of their gut microbiome so right from birth you're forming that gut microbiome and it is very individual and so to just go in and take any old sort of probiotic particularly if you have a gut issue may not be helping like sometimes i'll get um, someone's gut microbiome testing back and they'll be actually quite high in lactobacillus which is a beneficial bacteria but it's out of balance and most of the um, probiotics that you buy over the counter at a pharmacy will actually have quite a high lactobacillus content. So if you've already got a high lactobacillus that's out of balance, and then you're throwing more lactobacillus in there, you're actually compounding your problem and you're not helping yourself, plus you're wasting your money. And we know that the research now is so specific to the actual strain. So it's not just a lactobacillus trial, it will be a specific strain of the lactobacillus that they will research in a particular disease and show it being beneficial or non-beneficial. So to actually get prescribed probiotics that are really specific to help your particular gut problem will make a huge difference to your recovery. And that's why I, I'm so um, grateful that we have this testing but also just, yeah, I really, really strongly recommend that people don't try and self medicate i guess these probiotics when they could be actually compounding your problem rather than healing your problem we have a very american viewpoint of if some is good then more is better <laughs> it's like that here in australia too <laughs> totally but too much of a good thing can be too much yeah right? yeah um, like anything like anything well, I get you know? the, I, that's a question that I get asked a lot. Like, mm. what's what's your recommendation for just a, a straightforward probiotic? And I really don't like to give one for no. this exact reason. Yeah. How about prebiotics? Because they are like the sweetheart of the wellness world right now. And I so we're know. seeing them pop up everywhere. What do you think about prebiotics yeah. for IBS? Well, again, this is interesting. So it really, it depends on the patient because we know, of course, if there is SIBO present and you're giving prebiotics, you're feeding the SIBO. You're going to actually cause more problems in that upper intestine by feeding the bacteria that are not supposed to be there. So that's really important to have that excluded if you have a gut problem. I'd like it... I'd, I always like to kind of clarify that because for, if you don't have any gut issues, of course, prebiotics are going to be fantastic to help feed up your good gut bacteria and keep you well. And we know that, I mean, prebiotics is, is a fiber. And we know that for most people, they're probably not getting enough fiber. So it's, it is a good thing for many people to have prebiotic foods. 
Um, you probably don't need a prebiotic supplement unless you have an issue, and in which case you need to have the right one. And you need to have that prescribed by someone that's assessed your condition. But yeah, when, when I'm introducing prebiotics to people with IBS, I, I get them to do it very, very slowly because sometimes, you know, they can actually constipate people more if they get really enthusiastic and really get into the prebiotics and they're not drinking enough water and their gut bacteria haven't had time to adjust to having this extra fiber in the bowel, then yeah, people will get symptoms. Okay. So that's, that's good to know. And it, you mm. also need to be mindful because they're kind of cramming prebiotics into a lot of different things, <sighs> whether they're energy bars or probiotics yes. or protein powders. I mean, they're everywhere. So oh, I think that would be, yeah, yeah it's, it's nuts. It is nuts. Like just yesterday, I, I had a client who said to me, oh, I've been trying this new protein powder. I'm like, oh yeah, tell me what it's called. And, and I looked it up and that was exactly that. It was full of probiotics. Although to be honest, I, I, the dosage was so low. I I'm, think they probably wouldn't have even survived the journey from the wholesaler into the pharmacy, let alone still be alive um, because it wasn't a refrigerated product. But also, yeah, full of prebiotics as well. And I just thought, oh man, people don't even know. They're not even appreciating that that's in there. So for some people, it's not really a selling point anyway. And they don't know. And for people that have gut issues to be throwing that in there is just not necessarily helpful at all and could be harmful. Yeah. It can sometimes be like throwing gasoline on a fire. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about treatment and remedies and what you see work really well. Um, or, you know, or do you take more of a mental, emotional managing stress approach or are we trying to go after critters in the gut or is it, <laughs> or is it both? Um, I feel like, you know, if there's an infection in the gut causing our symptoms, we can't meditate that away. But on the mm. other hand, if we're just throwing antimicrobial herbs at the situation and not mm. addressing the stress and the mind-body piece, then it's very hard to clear pathogens or heal yeah. the lining of the gut. So I feel like the folks who might experience symptom relief initially, um, but then they come rip-roaring back, like recurring yeah. SIBO or whatever, they're not really addressing the mind-body, the, right. the brain-gut the stress piece. Yes, absolutely. And the, the first thing I do, like that's what's wonderful about mind-body work is you can start it straight away. That's, you know, you're not going to harm anyone by teaching people to breathe. So one of the, the first things I do um, when I assess someone, obviously I, I would usually uh, recommend testing. And so while we're waiting for the testing to come back, the first thing I get them to do um, is belly breathing. Belly breathing um, is a way of telling the brain that there is no threat anymore. It's a way of lowering your stress response and increasing the relaxation response, so the opposite nervous system. And it's extremely effective. And once you know how to do it, you can do it all of the time. No one knows you're actually doing it. And I find that just giving someone a tool, so rather than just someone coming into my office, I order test, I don't, rather than loading them up with supplements first, I get them simply to breathe. It's free and it's extremely effective. The other thing, so yeah, mind-body is really important. And also because I find a lot of the people that come and see me, meditation is not part of their life. 
And when people are very stressed and they're feeling unwell, to try and get people to meditate straight away can be a big ask. So I find the breathing is a very gentle way of introducing people to that mind-body work. Oh, that's such a good point. I have a lot of people that are so spun out that asking them to meditate. I just know it's not going to happen. It's not the way. It's not the ticket in. So I love the belly breathing. You know, I was just talking about this earlier. We have so much pelvic floor dysfunction and so much tension in our Mm. pelvic floor throughout our abdomen, fascial adhesions in the belly. And um, I think part of the problem is that we're just not allowing our bellies to ever relax, especially as women. I mean, the corset yeah. is no longer in style, but we're still sucking in our guts all the time. <laughs> I mean, you go into a yoga class here and you'll hear, engage your core, you know, suck yes. it in all the time. And so yes. we're constantly um, engaging those muscles and never allowing them to relax, God forbid. Yes. And so we need to do that in order to, you know, appropriately breathe. Yes, absolutely. And we, we, in the West, we tend to be shallow breathers. And, um, you know, if you look at, if you have a pet, if you look at your dog, if you look at a baby sleeping, breathing, they will breathe into their belly. That's a natural thing to do, but we don't. We, for, for those, those social reasons that, that you mentioned, and it, we just, we're not thinking about it. We're sitting at our computer and we're breathing sort of more in the, the upper chest and the mid chest. And it's really, really important. So, and I, and I, I totally agree that trying to get someone to meditate who's never done it before and has no interest, impossible. But breathing, anyone can do that. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> How about, um, I know you like to use a food mood journal. Can you yes. tell me a little bit more about what that entails? Ah, this is one of my favorite tools to use. So I give people a journal. It's very detailed. Uh, and I do warn people, it's, it is honestly a little tedious to start writing everything down. But when people start writing down things like, you know, what time they wake up, did they wake refreshed? What did they eat or drink when they first wake up? What did they have for breakfast? What time was that? And just throughout the day, what were their meals? And then, you know, what were there any digestive symptoms? What was their mood like? And what I find is a couple of things happen. One is people start to eat more healthily because they know I'm going to be looking at it. So, and I tell people, that's okay. You can eat more healthily. That's fine. Um, so it shows them that they can do it for a start if they're motivated to do it. But also people say to me, oh my gosh, I thought that I had a dairy intolerance, but then I didn't realize how much dairy I was eating. And in fact, it's actually eggs. That's the problem. And so people have in their mind what's already wrong with them, but sometimes that's actually not reality because they're influenced by what their neighbor's telling them, what they're reading on the internet. And doing this food and mood journal, people realize, gosh, I'm waking up every morning and I feel terrible or I'm, I've got no energy. Or, and, but they, again, it's this lack of um, being in touch with what's going on with themselves so they're just powering through the day they're busy they just got stuff they need to do so they're just doing that and not taking any notice of how their body is feeling and it's only when those questions are asked that they sit back and go actually I'm not in a good place and so that food and mood journal is a I find a really powerful tool to not only look at what people are eating but really get into how people are feeling and how they relate that to their 
um, food that they're eating, but also their sleep and just generally recognizing, in fact, that they are not feeling good. Yeah, I think we put our, bl- our blinders up a lot about like how we're feeling and how the choices that we make every day and the mm. way that we live our lives might affect us on a physical level. So it really sounds like that brings some attention yeah. to to everything. Okay, so we know that food sensitivities contribute to IBS. So the Food Mood Journal would help to kind of suss those out. We know that low serotonin production could do that. So eating more protein and supporting serotonin production can be helpful. What other things do you do to heal or manage IBS to improve Mm. it? Yeah. Um, So the, uh, in terms of some supplements that I look at, usually almost always there will be glutamine. Glutamine is just so beautifully healing for the gut. It's the intestinal cells preferred fuel. So it really um, helps them heal and having a, a high dose. I mean, glutamine is, a, is an amino. We get it from protein, but having it in that high dose supplement form uh, really helps to allow that glutamine to get into the intestinal cells because lots and lots of cells use glutamine. So, we, uh, so I use those uh, glutamine supplements. Uh, also, um, I mentioned before zinc. Zinc is very healing for the gut and for other tissues also um, I do use a fair bit of magnesium as well because of because of its um, uh, muscle relaxant effect as well so I find that that can be as well as being very relaxing overall helping people sleep but also relaxing muscles so taking tension out of the the body in a way that they can feel it's also very good I find for helping people relax in the bowel Um, There's also, um, I do use some prebiotics when that's uh, appropriate, when we know that there's no SIBO present, uh, then I will use some prebiotics as well to start feeding up the good bacteria. But I tend to to go by that um, is a naturopathic kind of formula, which is weed, seed and feed. I don't know if that's something that, Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I do tend to, I have to admit, um, I don't tend to put probiotics in until I've done the healing in the gut because I do worry a little bit about the increased intestinal permeability, if that's present, um, about putting probiotics in before the gut is healed. Because are you afraid it's going to trigger an immune response? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, speaking of immune, can you just... For, the, for those listening who might not be super familiar with this whole wide world of the gut, what mm. is the difference between IBS and IBD? Oh, okay, right. So IBD is, um, well, it's two diseases are in IBD, inflammatory bowel disease. So that's Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And they're two, um, oh gosh, they're quite nasty, unfortunately diseases and um, they are in fact I think rising in incidence and they have um, where IBS is not considered an autoimmune disease um, IBD is considered under that autoimmune disease category and in Australia um, often those those people will have a fairly significant and aggressive medical treatment 
and the naturopathic treatment will be uh, more supportive just depending on the severity of the disease but that kind IBD is really um, a much more significant I guess disease than IBS in that you can get that that worst case scenario can result in getting pieces of the bowel actually resected out which is obviously really quite distressing for the people involved whereas that doesn't tend to be the case with IBS. And would you say with IBS um, it's possible to um, reverse it or to completely heal it? Have you seen that? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. It's it's it can be really, really well managed, really well managed through diet, through getting those food intolerances identified and controlled and through that mind body work using relaxation techniques so that you can, you know, because we can't control necessarily the stressors in our environment, but we can choose the way we respond to those stresses and we can train our brains to respond in a way that is more healing for our body rather than harming our body. So yes, absolutely. Well, that is a very hopeful note to end on. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not saying it's easy. (laughs) (laughs) But it's possible. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, thank you so much. That was super helpful. Can you tell everybody where we can hear more of you? I know you have your own podcast and where can people find you? Yeah. So I have my own podcast called The Wellness Glow and that's on Apple and Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, My website is susiegarden.com. That's S-U-S-I-E. G-A-R-D-E-N.com. And I also probably spend most of my time in my Facebook group, which is called the Wellness Glow Solutions for Stress, Fatigue, and Anxiety. And we talk a lot about mental health and gut health in that group. So yeah, please feel free to come and join me there. I'll be sure to post all of those things in the show notes so you guys can check out Susie. Thank you so much. This was great. And you gave a lot of really good and useful tips that people can Put into practice, including just breathing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So start important. that today. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Susie. It's a pleasure, Erin. Thank you so much for having me today. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you'd like to submit a question to the show, fill out the contact form at erinholthealth.com. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. Take care of you. Okay, bye-bye.